It's a real honor and privilege to be amongst you. Uh, if you guys have your Bibles and you wouldn't mind opening up to 2 Kings uh, chapter 5, that's the passage I'll be reading from in just a little bit here. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. And as you guys are turning there to kind of give you a little bit of an idea of what uh, my SEAL team was doing on the last deployment, I was involved in out in Iraq. Uh, we were given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out, while, while we're out there, we're working with this group. Uh, they're called the ISOF. It's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so what's the best way to do that? Well, the best way to do that is not only train them on base, but actually go outside the wire and fight side by side with them. Well, if you can imagine a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good because we've, you know, bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes. We're making the world a better place. And coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And we weren't really sure if the ice off was ready for us to pass that baton off to them. So we decided, hey, for this final operation, why don't we try and make it a sort of graduation operation? We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. So they start from scratch, they're hitting the streets and they need some intel. Well, they find this source that informs them about a man that's an Iraqi policeman by day, but at night back home, as it turns out, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And to kind of give you an idea of the type of character that makes a suicide vest, oftentimes these guys are not very motivated to actually be the one to strap it on themselves. In fact, they have such a difficult time finding somebody to raise their hand and volunteer for that job uh, that in some cases they just can't. And in one instance, what they did is they took two mentally handicapped women that had no idea what was going on, strapped them with these vests, shoved them off into a crowded marketplace as they watched from a distance setting it off with a remote, killing these women and obviously so many more. This kind of gives you an idea of the type of character that we're up against. But the ISOF, they've got this guy's number. You know, they figured out where he lives. They present the plan, how they want to approach the house, get in, grab the guy, extract it, all checks out, looks pretty good. But they did mention one of the unique thing, a little complaint. They felt they got shot at more than we did, and they thought they knew why. So we're like, okay, have at it. And they say, it's the color of your uniforms. We're like, really, the color of our uniforms, not the way we shoot, move, and communicate, nothing to do with tactics. You think it comes down to the mere color of a uniform you have on. And they're just convinced of this. And so what they wanted us to do was to strip the American colors off of our Humvees, paint them up these ISOF colors, and then they had a pile of ISOF uniforms that they wanted us to put on. So like, right, let's get this straight. You want us to put your uniforms on to blend in with you, to get shot at more with you. And they're like, yeah. It's like, fine. It's not about the uniforms. It's a great souvenir I'm taking home with me. Well, the funny thing is, is, you know, my dark complexion, start growing out a little facial hair, then get on one of these Iraqi uniforms. I'm walking around amongst my guys, and they're looking at me like, hey, Williams, you're really starting to blend in with those guys now, aren't you? I was embracing it. Well, in this final op, I'm standing up in the Humvee, that section called the turret, and I've got the 50 caliber machine gun in front of me. And for those of you that don't know, let's just say that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. I've got my night vision goggles on. I'm looking through this green little world, just kind of going over this mental inventory, thinking about all the things I know about this night checking off in my brain. I know my weapon's ready to go. I know where this guy lives, how we're gonna get in, grab him, extract. But one unique thing I know about this operation that truly makes it different than every other operation we've done up until this point, I know this is it. This is the final operation. And I can't help but to think about the fact that, man, just a matter of days from now, I'll be back in my hometown, Huntington Beach, surfing in the ocean. Uh, but here's what none of us really knew about that night was that we were actually being set up the entire time. 
uh, to get thrown in the absolute worst circumstances we'd been in on this entire deployment as we're getting set up on an ambush. And suddenly we find ourselves engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to shoot, move and communicate and do what we do best as SEALs that led to the obvious conclusion, I stand alive before you this morning, uh, but I think it's good to remember that it doesn't always work out that way, especially this Memorial Day weekend. We need to remember that our freedoms are not free and what are they paid for in? The currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. In a very similar way, consider our eternal freedoms. They were paid for in the blood of our savior at the cross. And so perhaps more on that ambush a little bit later, but I wanna get into God's word, 2 Kings chapter five here, and set up a little bit of that road to becoming a seal. What, up, what led up to that point uh, that night? And so 2 Kings chapter five, I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a, a mighty man of valor but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and they brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, if only my master with the prophet was in Samaria for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master saying, thus and thus is the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, go and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed. And took 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Quick translation, he's bringing the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver, and apparel. He's prepared to pay this guy off. Do whatever you got to do. We're going to find out this isn't something you can buy. Jump ahead to verse 9. We find Naaman on his way. He's en route. 150-mile trip he's making. Enemy-occupied territory. Verse 9. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand, call in the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana, the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash, be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was clean. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that uh, you would uh, just bring clarity to the scriptures here uh, this morning. That you would speak to us collectively and individually. That you would have your hand upon every person here. I know that nobody is here by accident because your word says you've appointed our times and our boundaries so that we would perhaps seek you and reach for you. You're not far from any one of us. And so Lord, just uh, fill us up, build us up. Uh, may we grow in the knowledge of Christ and be more useful to you out there in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Relevance of this passage coming up uh, shortly, but like I said, a little bit of that road to becoming a seal. Uh, for me, fresh out of high school, just attending a local community college, you know that saying, if you aim at nothing, 
you will hit it. Unfortunately, that was my aim at that time. I wasn't passing any of my classes because I was ditching, hanging out with friends, going surfing, and now it's the end of the year, time to take finals, those big tests. And for whatever reason, it was that moment as I'm driving into the parking lot, it took that moment right there for it to just really sink in and hit me like, wow, I'm turning out to be a loser. I mean, the kind of guy that no young person wants to be. So I'm thinking, how do I turn this around? I'm sitting there in my truck about to take these tests. I don't stand a chance of passing, but I know this much. I don't want to live a wasted life. I want to do something meaningful, something significant. So I'm brainstorming and I come up with the perfect plan. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go become an Alaskan crab fisherman, deadliest catch. I'm watching it on Discovery Channel and I'm thinking, that's it right there, man. There's some bragging rights in that. And I almost went with that when the other idea popped into my head, like, wait, no, why don't I join the military? And not just that, I want to go for it. I want to be a part of the most elite. I want to go through that most difficult, grueling military training. I know what I want to be. I want to be a Navy SEAL. And so sitting there in that school parking lot, I just make up my mind. That's what I do with my life. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so my first order of business is this. If I'm going to be a frogman, I don't need to go to school anymore. Started my truck up and took off out of that school parking lot. Never took those tests. Of course, next up on the agenda, I got to let my dad know. Some bad news and good news as I presented it to him. So I let him know the bad news, what's going on at school. Of course, like any father at that point, it's a surprise to him. He's like, ah. Oh. And the good news, I was waiting for it. It's all right, dad. I got a plan. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so he's looking at me, and you can put yourself in his shoes. Here's your son, hasn't demonstrated the discipline required to make it to the local community college, but now he's informing you he's going to go be a SEAL. And so he's just trying to reason with me. He's telling me, son, just so you know, joining the military is not like anything you have ever done in the past. This isn't playing ball or skateboarding. This isn't going to a local community college that when you decide you're over it, you could just stop. He says, if you join the military... Maybe then you find out it's not for you. Or suppose you quit and don't make it through SEAL training. Let's just be clear. You will still be in the military. And you're probably going to pick up a job, like chipping paint off some boat off the coast of Japan. Well, for whatever reason, the way I operate is that was the motivational speech for me right there. I'm, I don't need the that a boy, you can do this pat on the back. I need the, I don't know if you could do this. And so I know actions speak louder than words. So I'm preparing. I'm doing all the running, swimming, pull-ups, push-ups. Days are going by. And he invites me into his room. And he says, so you really want to do this, huh? You want to be a SEAL? I'm like, yeah, Dad, I want to be a SEAL. He goes, well, great. I set up a workout for you with the Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. And I'll never forget looking over at the screen as I'm thinking, my dad doesn't know any Navy SEALs. And this little one-liner there, it just says, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? So I'm like, play? Like, Dad, let me get this straight. You met some guy off the internet that says he wants to play with me? And you're arranging this meeting right now? No, no, no. He's a SEAL, son. I'm like, you can't trust everything someone tells you on the internet, dad. He goes, no, this guy's a SEAL. Like, All right, I'll go meet up with the guy. Well, as it turns out, there's more of a conversation that took place on the phone prior to that email that I didn't find out about till months later, but I'll give you guys that backstory up front. So on the phone, he's telling this guy, hey, look, my son wants to be a Navy SEAL, but here's the thing. He has no idea what he's signing up for. He does not know what he's getting involved in. And so I'm wondering if you could just do me a really big favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son? And what I'm asking you to do, I need you to just crush him. Like just bury him. Beat this desire of becoming a seal out of him. This guy thought about it for a while. 
And that was the reply, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? Off I go, Oceanside, California, meeting up with a Navy SEAL at a beach parking lot. And he's spotting me and pointing at me right away. You, Chad? I'm like, oh, yes, sir. All right, Bubba. I was Bubba from that point forward with this guy. I wind up being sent out on a run out into the wetlands. The only direction I'm given is run away from the ocean, down that dirt trail, into the wetlands. 15 minutes into it, I'll catch up with you. I just got some things I want to do back in my truck. So I'm going on this run, and I'm just, you know, passing by people. Now there's no one else around. I'm running away from civilization, and now it's 15 minutes into the run. And I'm looking back. I don't see this guy. So I keep running a little bit more, looking back, still not seeing him. So I start getting this idea in my head as I'm running. Hey, maybe, maybe I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't catch up on the run. I'm celebrating now. And I remember taking another look back, and it is like a scene at a Terminator 2 where that bad dude, the T, like he can run with knife hands after a vehicle. That's the Navy SEAL coming down this trail. So I'm looking ahead, and I'm just trying to keep that distance on it, but he closes the gap. Catches right up to where I am, and I never saw what was coming next. As he gets just ahead of me on the trail, he just stops and turns on a dime as I'm greeted by his fist just going right into my stomach. And I'll never forget that feeling of just being clotheslined. Feet coming off the ground, just having that wind knocked out of me as I see sky, and I haven't even touched the dirt yet. And then this poof of dirt up all around me. And you have to put yourself in my shoes for a moment here, okay? The only intel I'm operating on is some guy, my dad met off the internet, now he's got me on the ground in the wetlands. I'm thinking, child predator, this is happening. And it doesn't stop. He's jumping on top of me now. I mean, his knee is on my stomach and then he's just ragged on me. That sound of the threads of my shirt ripping, it's like still in my head to this day. Spit flying out as he's screaming in my face. It's hitting me in the cheek and the forehead. This guy's going nuts. I'm just trying to survive. But then I hear these words come through, crystal clear. He says, you wanna be a Navy SEAL? You better stay three paces behind me. And there was something about that moment right there where it's just like, so much clarity, so many thoughts came to my mind. It was like time stopped, the pain lifted, and I realized this is it, and this is for real. It's not later on in SEAL training that I'm being called upon. This is the moment right now. If I quit right here, I just knew I'll forever be a quitter. Like if I throw in the towel right here, it's just gonna get way too easy to do that more and more and more. The way I respond is going to affect the trajectory of the rest of my life. And so I just affirmed this attitude of just like, dude, I'd rather die than quit. I'd rather die. And so he gets up and he says it three paces one last time and he turns and he takes off. I've got the wind fresh knocked out of me after running as fast as I could. That's never happened again in my life. It's a singular event. I can't explain the feeling and I hope I never go through that again. It was awful. And I'm getting up, I'm just growling and groaning and going after this guy. This goes on for miles down this trail. He's trying to shake me, I'm staying on his heels. I'm suffering staying with him. And we finally get to this point where he ends it. And I'll just say, looking back in hindsight, after having gone through SEAL training, which is some of the most difficult, hands down, maybe I could touch on it in a little bit. Looking back, I never went through a more difficult singular workout, uh, just a singular moment of suffering. I should call it a beatdown session, this encounter with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvinston. And so he's kind of ending this run, circling and, and pacing back and forth and looking at me and kind of looks like one of these cage fighters just waiting for the referee to initiate things and say, let's get it on. And at the time, I'm like this teenage skater punk kid. I don't want to project to the Navy SEAL that I'm willing or wanting to fight him at all. So I remember kind of looking down at the ground, just thinking, okay, Chad, don't set this guy off. No direct eye contact. Just use your peripherals. Don't look him in the eyes. And he breaks this really awkward tension by just asking me a simple question. He just points over at me again and says, hey, if we would have got another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? 
And I just told him what came from the heart. I said, Scott, I'll die before I quit. Well, he, I mean, completely changes his demeanor. Now he's smiling. He goes, great. Hey, you want to meet up again for another workout tomorrow? And I'm kind of thinking, are we going to address the flashback that guy had on the trail? Like, he really snapped. But then I thought, don't bring that up because he could start up again, you know. So I'm like, yeah, okay. And so I'm going back home. And as it turns out, uh, he got on the phone with my dad and said, look, I know what you want me to do. I gave it a go, but I think your son might have what it takes to make it. I'd like to start meeting up with them. So from that point forward, I began to meet up with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvinston. And thankfully, it was no longer a beatdown session. It became more of a building up. I moved on in life from being Bubba uh, to one day I became junior. You know, he really took me under his wings. This guy's mentoring me. Scott's an extraordinary Navy SEAL. He holds all kinds of records. Youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training. This won't make sense to you. 17 years old. It's only possible because of all the foster homes he grew up in. He's a world champion panathlete. He's the fastest Navy SEAL in the SEAL training obstacle course. Another funny one, a record he holds, the only man to beat the beast on a TV program at the time called Man vs. Beast, where they put him up against a chimpanzee through an obstacle course, and he pulled ahead of the monkey. Where? On the monkey bars. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And you could YouTube that, Navy SEAL vs. Chimpanzee. And so you can imagine what it's like to get trained by him. And as time went by, he got me ready. And so I sign up, I got a date, it's set, I'm shipping off. He takes an opportunity, as he put it, to go overseas one last time. The turnaround for him is a little bit quicker. He's going out before I go out. So he's getting on the phone with me. He's telling me, all right, Junior, about to go do this thing. He's referring to going off to Iraq. He says, I just want you to know something, though, that I've never told anyone. I've ever trained before. He says, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And to hear those words from my mentor, I still don't have the words to describe just how much that meant to me. I couldn't wait to prove him right, make him proud, and just to get out of this loser lifestyle that's not making it to junior college and go do something with my life. And so he's reminding me the timeline. He's only going to be out there a couple months, and that's about the same amount of time I'll be at boot camp. So by the time I start SEAL training, he says, I'll be back. We're going to see you make it through. So we get off the phone, say our goodbyes. Days go by. I'm about to go. Just a handful of days to go. On the television one day, I look over and I see something that just like shocks me. I see a big old picture of Scott smiling on the TV screen. And I'm like, what is Scott doing on TV? I didn't know he's going to be on TV for something. I thought he's off in Iraq. So I'm trying to like figure out what this is. I'm not really tuned into the words in the background. Big old smiling image of him. Typical shot they use before they introduce somebody onto a program. But then I saw in the lower part of the screen Scott's birthday. And then it shows a dash. It says March 31st, 2004. And before I could translate that in my head, the meaning of that, it switches from a smiling image to graphic video footage, which turned out to be the vehicle that he was in engulfed in flames in Fallujah, Iraq, along with three others. And these insurgents had videotaped this ambush that they had performed on the vehicle, and now the media is playing these different scenes of Scott and these others being ripped out of the vehicles, lifeless, this anger Iraqi mob with sticks and rods that begin to beat and try and mutilate their bodies, and they wrapped rope around their legs and hooked them up to vehicles. And they went dragging them through the dirt streets of Fallujah, Iraq. They arrived at the Euphrates River Bridge, strung them upside down, torched their bodies on fire. And as they burned in the background, they stared into a camera and chanted over and over a message I heard loud and clear that changed me as a human being. They chanted, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. I think pretty needs to say I'll never have the words to describe uh, just what that moment and all the surrounding moments are like. I think that there is a little bit of a lesson for all of us in terms of dealing with adversity. You know, in the SEAL teams, part of our SEAL creed, it says that we are forged by adversity. 
And so the thing is, is that everyone faces adversity. You don't make it as far as you've made it in life without having faced some adversity. And there will be more. It's imminent. Not a matter of if, but when. You can't control that. It's going to invade your life. You're going to get bad news. Something awful is going to happen. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But you have to be mentally prepared. If you can't control the fact that you're going to face more adversity, what's the one thing you still can't control? Your mind. You have control in that sense. You are the determiner of whether or not the adversity will be what we could call a wing or a weight. Will you allow it to be a weight that just sinks you, leaves you knocked down, never to get back up again? People see what he or she gets hit with and go, wow, they're never coming back from that one. Or do you find a wing in the moment, which is just really a way to rise to the occasion, to get some altitude, be forged by that adversity rather than fail because of it. And so you just need to know that in advance. You're gonna get hit. It's gonna come as a surprise, but what are you looking for immediately? You're looking for how am I gonna be forged by this? How am I going to be shaped and molded by this? And it's case by case. You know, in, in that situation with Scott, I think the forging process really began as I reflected on that last conversation I had with him. And he says, Junior, I know you're gonna make it through SEAL training. So I had his name written on the inside of my hat. It's a constant reminder, a motivation to make it through. I entered into SEAL training. Not gonna lie, at the time, a big part of me was fueled by revenge. And that's not a good fuel to live off of, but it's just kind of where I was at. And those reasons would mature along the way. Uh, but uh, I, I was a part of Bud's Class 254. And Bud's is basic underwater demolition SEAL training. This is where the rubber meets the road. By far the most difficult military training, hands down. And to kind of give you guys an idea just how tough it is, I suppose I could share something a little exclusive and unique with you all. I didn't share this with the group last night. It's the most difficult day of training. It's not recorded in any SEAL book. It's not in my book. It's not in any SEAL movie you've ever seen. The most difficult day of training comes the day before you graduate. And to kind of set that up, you know, the first day of training, amongst all the tortures these instructors put you through, just you wind up doing thousands of push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups. You run hundreds of miles throughout training. You get surf tortured. I don't think it's any secret that in the SEAL teams, you see it all over social media nowadays and Instagram, you know, special forces. We have dogs in our platoons we use as attack dogs and bomb dogs. But what you might not know, you get a little dog at the beginning of training. And that might sound kind of cool to get this little puppy in the beginning, but here's the deal. The last thing you want to deal with at the end of a very long day of training, some whiny, poopy, peeing dog keeping you up all night. It's like a little torture device, and the instructors know the sleep deprivation. It'll put you through them. But you know that same man's best friend. It's true. You know, whether you like it or not, this dog does kind of begin to grow on you as you're looking out for him and loving on him. He's your little ally, your little buddy. I named my dog Nacho, all right? Nacho! But like I said, getting around to this most difficult day of training, the day before you graduate, in order to demonstrate that as a Navy SEAL, you are prepared, if this is what's required of you, to take life. You have to take this dog that you've loved and looked out for. It's with your own bare hands. You have to turn and break its neck. <laughs> I'm just kidding with you guys. You don't do that to a dog in SEAL training. No, no, no. <laughs> you do it to a cat. So, no. All right, I gotta be really clear here. <laughs> that is not true at all, all right? I just wanted to lighten up the mood a little bit and uh, apparently many of you have the same sense of humor I do. <laughs> I'm sorry for the one in a hundred of you that are very upset by that. Please forgive me. Hopefully I can win you back over by the end of this. So, I mean, we're just talking about some truly real heavy stuff, right? That's a fictitious story, a wise tale that's out there. Um, how tough is SEAL training? I think the numbers speak for themselves. Class of 173, 13 by graduation day. That graduation day, man, that was one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life. 
because I just achieved this thing that I thought was like the ultimate. And uh, not only was it one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life, I'd say it didn't take more than 24 hours before I felt like I began to go downhill, circle the drain, and I couldn't understand why. The wind was just taken out of the sails from that point forward. But it was years later I heard these words spoken by a Christian philosopher where he says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate and the end, it lets him down. And what he's referring to is something, again, I think everyone here is familiar with, at least to some degree. It's that human condition. The whole idea that the grass is always greener on the other side. You know, we're not quite fully happy, satisfied, content with where we're at. What do you want? Just want a little bit more. And so we buy into this belief that if I just had this achievement, this goal, whatever it is, relationship, then I would be satisfied. And so you put in all the work, you, 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 you have the drive, the, the discipline, and the, the blood, sweat, tears, whatever it takes to get to this goal. And you get there and you eat it up, you're satisfied, but what happens? Satisfaction doesn't last. What do you do? Step back for a moment, you put on your thinking cap. All right, I know what it is. The reason this didn't give me lasting fulfillment is because I didn't go for something big enough. If I really want it to last, I need to raise the bar, man. I need to go that next rung of the ladder. So now we're shooting higher, thirsting for that new one. And we put in all that work, we get there, we drink it up, and this one satisfies you. But what happens? You get hungry and thirsty all over again. It's a vicious cycle, and seemingly there just is no end point. But there is an end point. And that is the whole point to that quote of one of the loneliest moments a person will ever experience when they've achieved that which they thought would deliver the ultimate in the end, it lets them down. What happens when you finally arrive at a place where unlike all the previous times before, you can't say, well, I'll just go to the next rung of the ladder. No, nope, you can't do that this time. Why not? You're at the last rung of the ladder. There is nothing else to climb up. What about when you're at a place where you go, you know what, I'll just gain a little bit more elevation, climb up the mountain a little bit higher. No, you can't do that this time. Why not? You're at the peak of the mountain. There is no more elevation to climb. And yet, like all the other times before, you're hungry and thirsty for more. But unlike all the other times, there is no next. That's where you get those words. And you see it in the lives of so many that, in a sense, have climbed the peak of their mountain or climbed to the top of their world. And professional athletes and rock stars, movie stars, what do you see going on inside of their lives? Constant drama. They're destroying their own lives with drugs and alcohol. Can you go to parts unknown? What a dream job. He's taking his own life. And we're like, why? Don't you know what you have? Don't you know what people would trade to be in your shoes? But maybe that's just it. Having all that the world has to offer is not all that it's cracked up to be. And we don't like to hear that. We don't want to buy into that or believe that. We want to believe there is something more. But that's all the world has to offer. And Jesus, the wisest one that ever walked the face of this planet, he framed it perfectly when he says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in the end loses his soul? That's the real problem right there. You can gain the whole world, but if your soul is not right with your maker, you will have no peace here on earth. And so in a sense, becoming a sin was my version of gaining the whole world, but my soul wasn't right. And if we have no peace with our creator, have no expectation to experience peace here on earth. I didn't go on some spiritual quest at that point. I thought, man, that's it. That's all there is to life. If anything, go overseas, get a little get back, you know, for Scott. And so I was just kind of doing whatever made me feel good then at that time. So I worked hard and kind of adopted the whole play hard mentality. Scaring family and friends. They're confronting me saying, look it, your lifestyle is going to get you killed or somebody else killed. I decided, let's just get them off my back, buy another night. 
A little bit more time, I'll go to this church thing with them. They want me to go some evening thing, I'll go. I haven't been to church in a long time. I'll punch my card in, and by the time this thing's over, they'll go to sleep. I'll fall off their radar. They'll be happy, and then I'll go do what I really wanted to go do, you know, with the night. So we go. And this passage gets opened up, 2 Kings chapter 5. And there's a pastor by the name of Greg Laurie that was teaching from it that night. And so if we could break down 2 Kings chapter 5 here, remember Naaman, here he is, this commander, this mighty man of valor. Sounds like the guy could have been a seal had there been such a thing during his time. He's this mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And how serious was leprosy during the time of Naaman? Well, let's put it this way, a little worse than the case of eczema. Jesus, looking back, said nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. It's a death sentence. And so circle back and picture Naaman's life like this, if you would. So much for all that success. So much for this outward man. Fearlessly leads his men into battle. The armor that he wears. Underneath that armor, what's really going on, Naaman? Underneath that clothing, what's really going on? Well, what's really going on is he's a deteriorating. He's falling apart. He's literally a dead man walking. Well, as I was listening, I related with that guy right there. And if you think about it, maybe some of you can relate with that person as well. Because who are you? You know, who are you in front of your coworkers and family members and friends? When in reality, there's some other issues going on underneath that armor that they don't even know about. And you feel like that dead man or dead woman walking. So I find myself captivated. I'm listening. And no doubt about it, Naaman has probably tried everything he could do to fix himself. But it is the impossible. But this little servant girl speaks up, unsung hero. She says, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. Naaman's desperate, so he needs to get the okay from his king. King says, I'm sending a letter with you. He's going enemy-occupied territory. He needs to go see this guy that serves the God of Israel. He gets there to the door, and he's not even at the door. Instead, what does he do? Sends a servant to the door. Huge disrespect. And the servant tells him, basically, go dip yourself in the Jordan River and you'll be clean. And the way Naaman took that, we don't gotta wonder. It says he became furious. And he explained exactly what his expectation was. He said, I expected that guy was gonna come out of his place and wave his hand over the place and call in the name of the Lord his God and strike the leprosy away. He was expecting some real special effects and a red carpet treatment. Does this guy have any idea who Naaman is, the mighty man of valor? Instead, he gets treated like a normal, like a less than normal and it infuriates him. He could probably just about have that guy's head right now. And so before he does something like that, just says he turns and he goes away in a rage, venting out loud, saying that if I could just go wash it off, why not go back home where I'm from in Damascus? We have far better wars than the wars of Israel over here. And so as he's leaving in this rage, if you haven't caught it yet, what's his real problem? I think the leprosy is just a symptom on the surface. The real problem underneath it all is his pride and his ego. It is getting in the way. And if he continues in that direction, he's dead. Here's the neat thing is that he's surrounded by some men that care about him. And they're not going to let him off the hook that easy, even if it's a little bit of a confrontation. I'm sure it wasn't easy for them to speak up to the, the Naaman. And they're saying, look, Naaman, you know if this guy came out and gave you some big great thing to do, you would have done it. Which is true. I mean, if you think about it, use your imagination. What if the guy did come out, roll out the red carpet, really stroke his ego? Oh, Naaman, your reputation, you know, precedes you. Have we got something only a mighty man of valor can do? It's going to take strength and might and mental toughness. It starts with broken glass, kick off your shoes, and then we got a CrossFit exercise. You finish the wad in time, and you will be fixed of your leprosy. 
what would Naaman be like then? He would be like, bring it on. Show me where to start. But because this is a simple thing, what did it seem like to him? A foolish thing. We can't miss that. That's exactly what it says about the preaching of the cross. So many people think of Jesus as foolishness to them. No doubt about it, Naaman here is a state of perishing. But something these guys say, somehow God uses. It wasn't brilliant, but that's just it. God could speak through any one of us. He could take the littlest things that we say that we don't even remember saying to somebody, and it just rocks their world because he's speaking through that. I know that for a fact because one of the people that spoke into my life was another Navy SEAL by the name of Jeff Bramstead. And I wasn't a believer at the time, and he'd call me up. And I was just telling him, man, I'm not experiencing, I don't know. I just, I don't feel like anyone at church. Maybe I'm missing it. Maybe it's not the right time. I've prayed the prayer. I don't know how many times and I'm just not experiencing it. And he goes, I don't know what it is, Chad, but I do know this much, that God will not work with you until you give him an empty template to work with. It seems that you're probably keeping some things on the table. And he was 100% right. I didn't want to give it to him, but in the back of my mind, there were some things that I was holding back. I always thought, that when I prayed the prayer, I was making a pretty good deal with God. I was willing to give up about 98% of things. But there's a couple of things I never intended to give up. And so he says that to me. And it took years. It was years later when I finally made that 100% commitment to the Lord. Gave him an empty template. And I, I call him up and I let him know, man, I became a Christian. I, this is the real deal, new, new, new creation. I go, hey, man, remember that time that you, you said to me, God will not work with you until you give him an empty template to work with? He goes, no. <laughs> I'm like, no, dude. Like, I was driving down the Silver Strand. We were talking on the phone. And you said, he will not work with you. Empty temple. He goes, I, I said that? I'm like, that was you. Yeah. I'm like, that haunted me. I couldn't rest my head on my pillow for years with that. And so the littlest things that you say, you never know. So these guys just say, you know, if he gives you some big, great thing to do, you would do it. Name it decides, all right. I'm going to go do what they want me to do. He wants me to do. And by he, really, the God of Israel. I think he gets it now. It's not just a matter of dipping myself in some water. I'm sure he's done that many times. It's that in order for me to live, I must die. I have to humble myself. I have to go to my own funeral. His real problem was his pride and his ego. So as he's making that 180 direction change, there's a 180 going on, I believe, emotionally, intellectually, most importantly, spiritually. He's denying self, walking out there, peeling away that armor that would need to go, really being transparent, dipping seven times. When he comes up that seventh time, brand new skin, like that of a baby. That's what it says in the little Hebrew. I remember listening to this, feeling captivated and motivated. It's like watching a movie. You know, I love going to the theater, especially during that time. Why? Because it's kind of a great escape. You can get away from all the clutter and debris of life you know, walk into a nice, cool, dark movie theater, have your popcorn or whatever it is, and just kind of deep compress and for a little bit not live your life, but live vicariously through the life of the character. And like so many movies where the hero goes through some type of adversity in the beginning and then it all works out in the end, what happens at that point? Well, at that point, usually where the hero wins, gets the girl in the end, the credits roll. And what does that mean? Well, lights are gonna come back on and now it's no longer time for you to mentally check out it's time to go back out there into the world and face reality. Well, I want to make a point that the credits don't roll right here. Uh, that just as God provided a way out for Naaman, he's provided a way out for you and I as well. And what form does it come in? Dipping ourselves somewhere in some water? He dipped his son down into the world. 
This Jesus lived a holy, perfect, sinless life. If we're being honest, this is the life that we have not and could not ever live. If you haven't caught it yet, what is that leprosy a picture of? That leprosy in the Old Testament is a picture of our sin. We are spiritual lepers. We are spotted and blotted and blemished. And just like Naaman couldn't do anything in and of himself to get this leprosy off of himself, we can't do anything to get sin off of ourselves. It's a mess. But when Jesus went to the cross, he went there with purpose. What was the purpose of him going to the cross? It's explained explicitly. You can't miss it in the gospels. It's simple. It's very black and white. To save his people from their sin. He takes this stuff that we're covered in and he switches places with us. He takes our leprosy, as it were, our sin upon himself. Trade skin. So we could be lavished with God's grace and his mercy. Paying the penalty of our sin in full at the cross. He paid what we'd owed. The wages of sin is death. And then he rises again from the dead. And that is very significant because there's no Christianity without it. Do you believe that God rose Jesus again from the dead? It validates he really was who he claimed to be. Theologically, we know why he went to the cross. We just said it, to save his people from their sins. Historically, why did he go to the cross? falsely accused of being a blasphemer and they mocked him and they said if you really are who you claim to be why don't you come down off of that cross and when he went into the ground I'm sure they felt very vindicated I'm sure they felt like ah we had it right and guess what the devil was fooled right there too I'm sure Satan thought he won but what he didn't know is God had something else in store and so he rose again from the dead Jesus was vindicated he's not a blasphemer he's truly who he claimed to be And this is God's stamp of approval, his authentication. He's validated as well. Validated his teaching. Very exclusive claims like I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You've got one life, one life here on earth. And it's a very narrow window and you never know when it's gone. Life is like a vapor. You think you'll be here tomorrow, you don't know. How many times we've said goodbye to somebody or see you later and you don't see them again. I don't know what you guys are going through. In a room this size, very good chance that there's many people that are here that won't be here next year. And then you go off into eternity and you will spend eternity. You will live forever in one of two places. Remember the wages of sin is death. It comes with nasty consequences. Is that what you want? Do you want to spend eternity away from God and in hell and shake your fist up at God and say, God, I'm gonna do life my way and I want nothing to do with you? He'll grant you your wish. Or do you finally come to a place, as C.S. Lewis says, that your love outweighs, your love for the creator because he first loved us, outweighs your love for sin and trying to do life your own way, the pride of life, the, the lust of the flesh and all these different things, trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction and all these other things that will never fulfill. Do you finally come to a point where you go, you know what, my love for God outweighs my love for this stuff. I'm ready to turn from it and put my faith and trust in him. For me, it was March 14, 2007 heard a very similar message. It's the gospel message, which is good news, is that we were meant for more. You know, Lewis also says that, you know, if uh, I find in myself desires in which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I am meant for another world. We all have this longing in our heart for something else. God has placed eternity in our hearts. It's a longing that only he could fulfill. He belongs in the throne of our life as the most important one. And when he is there, everything else will take its proper seat, its proper category, where it belongs. And so once God is in the throne of my life, now I could actually enjoy being a seal. 
in a way I never enjoyed it before, as secondary. The scriptures say, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so we gotta watch out because there's a danger in putting a hobby, a profession, or even a spouse in, you are the reason I live. You are the most important one. Don't put that on them or your kids or grandchildren because they can't live up to that. Only God can live up to that. But once he is where he belongs, the throne of your heart, everything else takes its proper category. And so the way I looked at it, I could be a seal for Christ. You could be a stay-at-home mom for Christ, corporate construction, or whatever it is for Christ. I wish I had time to hit the details of what happened to that ambush, but being Memorial Day, let's focus on this. It doesn't always work out that way where people come home alive. So our freedoms are not free. Let me highlight a couple names. One would be Michael Monsoor, who was a U.S. Navy SEAL. And while he's, he was in a place called Ramadi out in Iraq, he was on top of a roof providing cover for other SEALs that were out on the road. When from some unknown location, some insurgent ran up and threw a hand grenade on the roof, bounces off his chest, falls to the dark. If you can imagine, he had an exit just to step away. He could save himself. It's just a, a turn, a pivot, he's out, down a staircase. But here's the rub. So there's other SEALs on the roof with them and they didn't have time to get up and make it past this grenade to the exit. So Mikey in a split second selfless act just yells to these guys, grenade, so they could take some form of cover as he throws himself over the top covering it. And he absorbed the blast of that grenade. He took the shrapnel, the metal upon himself. He suffered and died on that roof. But because of what he did, every single one of these other guys on the roof, they all lived. And so you can mark these words down in history, greater love has no one than this one that lays on his life for his friends. My friend Scott, although he was killed and all these awful things hung from this bridge, it wasn't in vain. He's another manifestation of the truth of those words of greater love. He was there for freedom's sake. And one more to think of on this Memorial Day, we memorialize the life of Christ who spoke those words of greater love. So think about it this way, that as Mike Monsoor jumped on a hand grenade, absorbing the blast of that grenade so others could live. He covered it. What did Jesus do for you and I at the cross? He absorbed the blast. Not of a hand grenade, he covered the wrath of our sin. He took it upon himself, why? So that we could live with him forever in eternity. And as my friend Scott killed and hung from that bridge, ultimately for freedom's sake, never forget that Jesus was killed and he was hung, wasn't he? From the cross of Calvary so we could be set free from the eternal consequences of our own sin. So greater love has known than this one that lays on his life for his friends. You can see it in men like Mike Monsoor and Scott Helvinston, and even greater, what more could you ask for? That's the proper picture of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, look to the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says, for he, speaking of the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. The word might is there because not everybody will. In fact, the majority will not. Jesus says it. He says, wide is the gate and broad is the way which leads to destruction. There are many that go in by it. He says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. There are few who find it. What's the difficult thing to do? Because if you want to spend eternity in heaven and forgiveness of your sin, that's the thing we ought to do. I'd say the difficult thing to do is what we could call this morning, the naming thing to do. Humble yourself. In the end, the majority will refuse to bow their knee before God and don't get it twisted, their knee will bow and they will confess him as Lord, but they choose otherwise. It's said that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Those that go there, they choose it. They don't want anything to do with God. But if that's not you, maybe you're coming to a realization that this is what I was made for and meant for, which it is. And you want a right relationship with your creator. 
You want to know that you are right with your maker. That when you die, you'll go to heaven and that your life truly has divine purpose here on earth. You know what you need to do? Do the naming thing. Deny self. Throw yourself upon his mercy. Put your faith and trust in Jesus as your savior. Why do we call him savior? He saves you from your sin. And Lord, he's like your assault leader. He informs you then moving forward, like how you ought to shoot, move, and communicate through life. He begins to change the way that you think and the way that you look at things. That's the whole reason that we're here, to have that relationship, to know him and to make him known. So let's pray together and open up an opportunity for any man or woman here that needs to get right with their maker. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. So Father, we just come before you thankful on this Memorial Day for all of those that have gone before us and paid the ultimate price. And we certainly remember your son, Jesus, who shed his blood at the cross. And we know there is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood. Life is in the blood. He gave his life for us. Well, everyone's heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I just ask, would you just take a moment to consider who you are when you're in that room all by yourself. You know who that person is. You know if you're not right with your creator. And he knows. And the great news is this, he doesn't wanna point your finger or rub your nose in any shame. He wants to set you free. But you gotta do the name and thing. This isn't something that somebody else can do for you. It's a matter of humbling yourself. And maybe you think that you've done too much wrong. You're too far down the path of, of just diverted don't flatter yourself and ever think that any sin you've ever committed could possibly outweigh, outdo the blood of Jesus. You can't outdo him in that way. And so just be done with it. Naaman left one thing behind in that water in Israel that he did not go back home with. He left the leprosy in the water. What do you come in here this morning into this room with that you can leave behind, walk out without it? You gotta get straightened out with the Lord though. And so this isn't something I could do for you or any family member could do for you. This is between you and God, but you are not here by accident. The Bible clearly says he's appointed our times and our boundaries so that we would perhaps seek him and reach for him, though he's not far from any one of us. Very important moment that will echo on in eternity for many of you. This is a moment that will affect the trajectory of the rest of your life. And so if you would like to make that commitment to the Lord, you would like to say, I am denying self, repent of sin, and I declare my faith and trust in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. I would love to lead you in a prayer where you make that profession. And if that is you, I just ask wherever you are, if you're going to pray with me, would you lift a hand wherever you're at? Just raise your hand up high, prepare yourselves like men and women before your Creator, and we will pray together and get this straightened out. Please keep your hands up. Maybe you would identify as a Christian, but you're a prodigal you know that the label on the outside of the bottle does not match the inside of the content. And you need a moment where you come back home or you get back on track with the Lord. This is a time of rededication for you as well. If that's you, would you lift up your hand with these if we're gonna pray together. And let's get this, let's get this straightened out. Let's get it off your chest, be done with it. Walk out of here new. Awesome. Now those of you that have your hands up, I just ask if you truly mean this and your hand is up and you really mean it, empty template to work with, Stand up to your feet. And if you don't mean it, as we're about to pray together, just slip your hand back down. Remember, it's all in or nothing. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. All right, empty template. Praise God. Those of you standing, we're about to pray together. Everyone else, heads bowed, eyes closed, praying for these. But those of you standing, I just ask, as we're about to pray together, would you open your eyes and look at me? We are about to pray a prayer 
where you're making this commitment to the Lord and it's gotta be sincere, it's gotta be real. There's quite possibly a scenario where you just senselessly rattle words out loud after me and it doesn't work like that. It's not an incantation. What you're praying is I repent of my sin, God, and I declare Jesus my Savior and Lord. I believe you rose again from the dead. And if you mean this from a sincere heart, you don't have my word on it, you have God's word, it, word on it, he will remember your sin no more. Removed as far away as the east is from the west. And so if you're ready to do that, then repeat these words out loud from a sincere heart after me as we pray together. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, but you died on the cross for me and rose again. I turn from my sin now and I ask you to be my savior and be my Lord. Thank you for loving me and dying for me and help me to follow you from this moment forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God, amen. You guys can take your seats. That's what we're celebrating over right there. Praise God.